our Stand Against Gun Violence Town Hall event presented by the CWR Talk Network and CWR Media Group. This event is part of our commitment to our listeners as America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. Gun violence is a major issue in America, and there are many thoughts regarding how to find solutions to this problem. Now is the time to make a stand, and we thank you for joining us for today's town hall event. We hope that you will be inspired to take action as you listen to our panel of experts who will discuss many aspects of the impact gun violence has on our society and what can be done about it. Please stand with us by calling to share your thoughts on this important issue. Our number is 563-999-3660. That number again is 563-999-3660. So now, we are very proud to present our distinguished panel and our moderator, Las Vegas radio personality and CBS radio news reporter and news anchor, Ms. Desiree Peoples. Join us in this, what I believe will be a very interesting and engaging discussion about the stand against gun violence. Again, my name is Desiree Peoples, and I'll be your moderator throughout the program this evening. I'd like to start off by introducing our very distinguished panel of experts. I'm going to start off with Dr. Bindu Kalasan. She's an assistant professor of medicine and a, and a data scientist at Boston University. Dr. Kalasan will contribute by discussing the psychology behind America's obsession with guns and the trauma and the long-term effects of gun violence on victims. Next on the panel, we have Dakota DeBlon. She's a policy analyst for the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. Dakota earned her master's degree at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where her emphasis was on mental health policy. Dakota is especially passionate about firearm suicide prevention, destigmatizing the association between gun violence and mental illness. Next, we're going to be hearing from Mr. John Sutton. He is a former U.S. Justice Department special agent and with the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, he is the author of two books, which uh, he may touch upon tonight, The Difference Makers and Thin White Lines, readers of John's CWR Security Focus column, always benefit from John's knowledge and experience about everything related to security. And finally, we're going to be hearing from Michael Diamond. He's a military intelligence officer in the USAR. He is... <clears throat> He was a U.S. Army Reserve for seven years and is a veteran of Operation Desert Storm. Michael offers his insights on the needed reform in a state, in state and federal gun laws, military insights on civilian gun laws, and a lot more. He is a strong proponent on stricter gun control laws and a devout gun control advocate. Panelists, welcome to the discussion tonight. Thanks so much right, for having so us. 
Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome. All right. Well, let's get right into our very first question because I'm sure we have a lot of people who are, you know, ready to, to kind of hear some thoughts about this as we discuss this tonight. I'm going to start off by addressing Dakota. I'd like to know, um, you know, mass shootings and especially school shootings get most of the attention nowadays, especially in mainstream news. But where do the majority of deaths and injuries from gun violence occur? Do you think it's mass shootings or major crimes, domestic violence? I'd like to hear your input. So I think that most people would be really surprised to find out that the majority of gun deaths are actually suicide by firearm. So suicide by firearm make up three in every five gun deaths in the United States. So in 2016, which is the most recent year of data that we have available, almost 39,000 people died by gun violence, and nearly 23,000 of these deaths were by suicide, while about 14,000 were by homicide. But while the majority of gun deaths are suicide, the majority of gun violence is actually non-fatal gun injuries. Unfortunately, the federal government doesn't track firearm injuries as they do with firearm deaths, so we don't know a precise number of how many non-fatal injuries there are each year. But through surveys and other research, we know that there are on average over 70,000 firearm-related injuries every year, and the majority of those are unintentional injuries and assaults. So when most people hear the term gun violence, do you think they're mostly relating that to the actual crimes, or are they just kind of lumping everything into one distinct category? I think that sometimes people don't associate with suicide as gun violence because they think, oh, it's against yourself, it can't be violence. But that's, we believe that that is just wrong because gun violence, that firearm suicide is a form of gun violence, but it's violence against yourself in a moment of overwhelming hopelessness. But I think that the reason that most people don't know that is because the suicides are not getting any media attention. They're usually just one person. And there's also just a huge stigma in our country around suicide. Yes, I agree. And I think a lot of that also ties into the mental health issue, which we're, we're not going into. But yes, I think that's something that we do need to be aware of. Now, I'd like to uh, address panel, whoever feels uh, compelled to comment, please speak up. Uh, should those responsible for mass shootings be considered terrorists? And are laws on, or on terrorism, should they be applied to these types of individuals? Panel? I don't think that uh, the law should be applied as uh, in these types of shootings. I think that uh, mass shootings are a little different if we have a person who is not associated with one of the hate groups. But I think when you have shootings uh, in many states, like in Arkansas, if you have someone who threatens to shoot a person or who shoots a person, sometimes they will also charge that with that person with a terroristic act. Uh, but I think the uh, law should not be applied. Okay, and thank you. Uh, anyone else want to weigh in on this topic? Well, let's continue on, and I will address this next question to Dr. Callison. Uh, what do you think or what impact does America's gun culture 
and the love affair that so many Americans have with guns uh, has on gun violence in America? Is there some type of a psychological effect that um, kind of contributes to an influence on gun violence? That's right. You can just call me Bindu. But uh, to answer your question directly, um, what we have seen with research is that there is definitely a very strong association between gun culture, being in a, a gun culture, and um, in, in your risk of gun ownership. So given that we, we know this already, there is no point in vilifying this. What we need to do is just look back at what we already know by certain public health um, uh, 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 programs that we've implemented, for example, tobacco. But there was a time when it was cool to smoke. People smoked everywhere. It was socially acceptable. So what did we do about that? We did research, number one, and then we also had several PSAs to inform them. But we also know at this point that owning a gun is not going to be, you know, it, it does more harm than the uh, so-called good. So with PSAs, with, with um, uh, proper education, if we are able to change the perception of public, which we've done with, with cigarettes, but this one is definitely more difficult than, uh, um, than tobacco, because of the um, you know constitutional rights surrounding it, and also um, a much longer um, time that the country has been into this whole social gun culture. So I think at this point we we need to just stay away from from that part of vilifying. It is what it is. There is a social uh, a social gun culture in the country, and there's a lot of guns. And then we also know that there is gun violence, and what do we do? So we have to come up with solutions. So uh, we turn towards solutions rather than vilification. Yes, now I've heard people talk about the psychology of owning a gun and also the psychology of being affected by gun violence. You know, sometimes people experience all aspects of the spectrum. How can you address that? I mean, is there is there some type of a, um, I guess, a trajectory as far as how someone psychologically relates to guns just in general and violence? Uh, so that's a very good question. So what you're talking about is the intersection between the victim and the perpetrator. It happens. Yeah. And, and, you know, so there, there are some studies that have shown the social contagion but I really think what we, what we do is really vilification. And we, uh, the victims are kind of treated on par with the perpetrator. So, for example, someone gets shot. So you, you, I could be just walking down the street, and some uh, person A is trying to shoot person B, and people are really bad shots. So it could, the bullet could hit me. And if I'm taken to the hospital, I am still coded as an assault, Right. So those kinds of mm-hmm. things happen. And uh, uh, what we want to do is, again, you know, uh, turning towards the solution. So the victim, perpetrator, the recidivism, those are the, it's a small percentage. And it, I'm not saying it's not there. It, it is there. But once a bullet goes through someone's body, it doesn't matter whether that person is 
oh, you know, not in, into games, not into doing other things, or uh, it's just a mom walking down the street. It, the bullet does the same thing. And what I study is once the bullet goes through you, you are becoming a direct survivor of gun violence. And what happens to you in course of time? So at the acute event, there are certain things happening to you. And in the long term, there are certain events happening to you, both disease-wise and also social, uh, social outcomes. So at this point, I think we have to turn this whole um, uh, conversation around gun violence into that of it's a disease which is perpetrated using a gun and used by certain, um, certain people, but there are victims of gun violence, and we need to take out that part of vilification, and we need to see them as patients. They become patients regardless of, oh, they, go, they, they could have recidivism. Just because they get shot the second time, that doesn't mean that that person is, uh, um, uh, is an again or is, is a potential perpetrator getting shot. It just means that they got shot the second time. They could be living in neighborhoods which are, um, uh, which are not very safe. It could be that. And I, I personally know people who have been shot multiple times, and they, have, they don't own guns. So I, if, when you have very, very few of those, we should not make that the center of the problem. The problem is gun violence is a disease. How can we prevent it? How can we treat those victims of violence? Now, that's a, a great segue into, into part two of my question, because a lot of, a lot of times uh, the victims of, of gun violence are not only those who are injured fatally, but it's also the survivor's families, loved ones, children, and so forth. And there's also that long-term effect of people who right. are not necessarily direct victims, but indirect victims of gun violence. That is correct. Can you touch, yeah. on, can you touch, on, touch on that a bit? Yeah, so this is really my research area of survivorship. This is how we define survivors. You can't call everybody survivors, gun violence survivors. So we have to have separate nomenclature for all, but they are under the umbrella of survivorship. So if you have, if you're shot and a bullet goes through you, then you are um, categorized as a direct survivor. If you know somebody who's been shot and uh, or shot and alive or shot and died, then you are an indirect uh, survivor. And then event survivors, unfortunately, we have to define them as well. For example, school shootings. When school shootings occur, there are students who, who, are, who are there, but they're not really injured, which means that they don't, they don't uh, have a bullet through their body. And, you know, they still see the uh, massacre happening. And in case of mass shootings as well. So they are called, we call them event survivors. And then finally, very importantly, there are a whole lot of people who serve these people, serve survivors, so victims of violence, and these are, you know, social workers, um, psychiatrists, all of them who serve them, and they are bound to have some trauma from listening to them, working, working with them. That's vicarious trauma. So it's important to really classify them in four different um, categories. Okay. 
Thank you. Thank you for that. And for those of you who are tuning in and listening live, we do invite you to call in. We would greatly appreciate your feedback. To call us directly, the number is area code 563-999-3660. Again, that number is area code 563-999-3660. Okay, moving right along. Uh, John and Michael, I'd like each of you to weigh in on this next question. Tell me, gentlemen, how do average Americans who feel that they need firearms for protection factor into the equation regarding gun violence? Does gun ownership really make people safer? John, how about you start off? I think that uh, the average American uh, feels safe uh, when they have firearms, especially those who live in various parts of the urban America and various parts of the city. Uh, I know that um, where there's a lot of crime, high crime areas, people feel that uh, they are safe when they do own a gun, that they are least likely to be attacked. In addition to that, if attacked, that they will be able to defend themselves. In that vein, a lot of times people who own guns, they don't secure them safely from kids and other people, and sometimes the kids take the guns and uh, mistakenly shoot one another in the house, uh, accidentally uh, shoot one another in the house. And then sometimes teenage kids who are having uh, issues at school will take a family-owned gun to school or someplace to resolve an issue out in the streets or at school, uh, which contributes to a gun violence a gun ownership does make uh, a difference and make people feel safe. And I know on a broader scale the fact that in America, uh, most homeowners do have guns, and I think that is a deterrent for crooks, uh, those people who would attack people at home who decide to do that, as well as those countries who decide that if they decide to invade the United States, one of the big problems uh, they have to overcome is the fact that almost every, in a, almost every American home there is a firearm. But I think that, without going too far afield, I think that um, people do feel safer owning a firearm, and I think sometimes um, that is the main issue when we have family members uh, injured by firearms that are not actually stored safely. And I think that uh, it does make people feel safer when they do own a gun. But I think, on the other hand, one of our biggest problems involves uh, guns that are not really uh, purchased from legitimate uh, dealers. Um, All right, Michael. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think a couple of quick things on this. First of all, one of the things you uh, you emphasize in the military, where I came from uh, a while ago, is uh, the concept of threat assessment. And humans aren't particularly good at threat assessment. Any of us can think of times if you're in our if you're in an empty house at uh, 12 o'clock noon, you feel one way. If you're in that exact same house at midnight and it's pitch dark, you start hearing things. And so, as a result, people have a tendency. To, uh, be, um, to, to be incorrect in the way they assess the uh, threat around them. 
as a result, uh, to, to John's earlier point, they have a tendency to think, I not only need to have a handgun nearby, but it needs to be loaded. Uh, and we know that safe storage is a, is a, and the lack of safe storage is what leads to a lot of domestic violence, uh, suicides, and, and all the rest of it. I don't have the statistic handy. Maybe some other panelists know this, but the presence of a gun in the house is significantly more likely to be used on somebody in the house through a suicide or domestic incident than it is to be used on a perpetrator or an attacker or something along those lines. And so uh, it's one of the things to to keep in mind is that – at the very least, uh, gun owners need to move towards safe storage. Uh, the likelihood that you need to have a gun loaded and in your nightstand uh, is uh, is probably um, the sort of thing that is unnecessary and absolutely statistically leads to a much higher degree of likelihood that the gun is actually going to be used to kill either you or somebody else in the house. Well, again, that's a good I segue think- into my – oh, it, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I, this is Dakota. I can just kind of piggyback off of that with some of the statistics. Um, there's a ton of research that does show that easy access to firearms is associated with increased gun violence in all of its forms. And so with specifically with domestic violence, an abused woman is 10 times more likely to be threatened with a gun than to defend herself with one. And for the suicide, an access to a gun in the home increases the odds of suicide more than threefold. So those are just the exact statistics that he was talking about. Okay. No, I mean, that's, uh, that's very helpful info because it allows us to get a much clearer picture on the bigger problem. So, Michael, uh, that was a great segue into my next question about us hearing a lot about banning assault weapons in general. You know, according to the FBI reports, handguns were responsible for about 90% of homicides back in 2016. Uh, do you think we should be paying more attention to how to get handguns off the streets or out of the homes? Yeah, um, this is uh, this is Michael. I'll jump in first here. Um, but the yeah, uh, yeah I think uh, Desiree, absolutely the uh, the assault weapon issue and the assault weapon uh, role in mass shootings is clearly something that dominates news headlines and gets a lot of uh, a lot of press. But if you are looking to uh, reduce the uh, 33 some odd thousand uh, gun deaths annually in this country, uh, you know, it's all about the handgun uh, because that's where most of the problem lies easier to sell and to traffic and to move around. Uh, I have no, I have no love for the AR-15 or similar assault rifles. I, you know, as, uh, as somebody once said to me, uh, they put the mass in mass shooting. Um, and uh, I don't think they have any role uh, or high capacity magazines in a, uh, in a civilian society. I, I had one when I went to uh, war, uh, but I, I certainly don't think I should have one in, uh, in the cities and, and, and streets of, of the United States. But that having been said, uh, it's, again, one of those things that can get a lot of attention, but statistically be a smaller part of the bigger problem, which is the prevalence and ease with which people can get to uh, handguns uh, with uh, little or no uh, controls around that. Yeah, I agree. I think that's part of, of what concerns most people. It's not only the actual guns themselves, but it's the, the either ease of being able to get a hold of one or the lack of some type of, uh, like we've discussed earlier, some type of a a safety or something to prevent them from being so easily accessible. I would think also Uh, that um, 
more attention should be directed toward getting guns off the streets. I know some police departments have what they call buyback guns, where they encourage people to uh, sell guns that they have. They don't ask any questions. They don't run any background check, but they buy them back. Uh, in that program, there are instances where a lot of uh, teenagers or young adults go out and commit burglaries and other uh, crimes to get handguns for the purpose of selling them back to the police. But I, I think that handguns are a very serious issue, and I think we are naive not to know that. Like the days of bootleg liquor, we do have handgun peddlers in most neighborhoods and most cities. We have people who are called gun runners who sell these guns in neighborhoods for much higher prices than they are sold in the uh, gun uh, sports stores. And I think they are a big problem. And I know that a lot of teenagers feel that uh, they can buy a handgun off the streets without, with ease without having to have a background check-in. And even though it's in some instances the price of the handguns are cheaper, some they are higher, I think the most importantly in selling handguns, uh, the seller should have information regarding the mental stability of the buyer. And I think that's where our main problem exists, is that many people can go in to really... Uh, a sporting goods store, a gun shop, and purchase a gun and just have a routine background investigation run by telephone. And if the person has no record of violence, then he's usually able to buy a gun. But there's no information provided to the gun seller that the person has mental issues. And I think the mental issue thing is something that should be provided immediately to gun dealers. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think that um, a lot of times it's, it's, it's the, I guess, the psychological stability of someone that, that is in question when they become either a gun owner or, I guess, a gun shopper or a gun user, you know, and then, you know, if, how do you just determine, says, oh, I'm buying a rifle to go uh, deer hunting, but then gets into an argument with someone and then decides to use that rifle or gun, you know, for something else. So I'd like uh, to open it up to anybody on the panel of how you think something like that can be addressed. So this is Dakota. Um, there's a, So there's a lot of people think that mental health and mental illness is related to gun violence and particularly mm-hmm. mass shootings and interpersonal gun violence. But that's actually a huge myth, and there is a ton and ton of research out there that shows that people with mental illness actually are not inherently more violent, and that actually only 4% of all violent crime in America can be attributed to mental illness alone. So there are other evidence-based risk factors, such as alcohol misuse, past violent behavior, animal cruelty, that do increase your risk of violence. But a mental illness diagnosis on its own just doesn't increase your risk of interpersonal violence. It does increase your risk of suicide, but if you're talking about interpersonal violence, you're actually, if, you're, if you have a serious mental illness, you're actually more likely to be a victim of a violent crime than be the perfect, perpetrator of it. 
I think now, on, those, on those same lines, we do have people suffering from mental, certain mental illnesses who commit suicide by cop. That is, they do things for police to take them out to kill them. And um, there's evidence of that in many cases where uh, people disturbed, um, certain people with certain mental illnesses uh, decide to have a policeman uh, take them out. They lack the courage to commit suicide themselves, and they do what is called the suicide by cop. We see that often in cases where a person confronts a policeman, and, you know, the policeman has the gun aimed at him and it's given him the command to cease and desist, and the person does not. And I think once that person is killed, when you trace back that history, you will find that that person has some degree of mental illnesses and has been diagnosed uh, with some degree of mental illnesses. I'm not saying that all people uh, with mental illnesses uh, are prone to that type of behavior, but I do think it is a key thing in the equation of gun ownership and gun usage. Thank you. Now, Dakota, I'd like to ask you this question. In, in, in the same way that we have racial profiling, do you believe that there's something similar, such as like a gun owner profiling? Is there a certain type of, I guess, stereotype or profile that most people associate with people who are, quote, violent when it comes to gun, g- guns, using a gun, or even owning a gun? I think that when people do think about the person who necessarily might be violent with a gun, I think that the media and politicians and just everyone we see really talks about that it's mental illness. And, you know, that it's not, oh, it's not just the normal person down your street that has the gun. It's not me. It's the mentally ill people. It's the crazy people. And I Mm -hmm. think that that leads to the stigma of people with mental illness. And in this country, one in five people have a diagnosable mental illness. And so I think it's important that we aren't stigmatizing individuals with mental illness because they aren't inherently more violent. Um, Regarding gun ownership as a whole, I'm not sure about that question. Um, I don't know what people would necessarily think of a typical person who owns a gun. The other, if I... If I may, this is Mike. I think it's, it's it gets pretty hard to do that. If you say that there's roughly 330 million Americans in this country, and there's maybe roughly 300 million guns in this country, your your gun ownership as a class is not a particularly small segment. It's a massive segment, and it's a segment that's highly different based upon geography. Uh, the gun owner in uh, Central Detroit is is has a different set of has a different relationship with firearms than the gun owner in the upper peninsula of Michigan for instance pick one state um, and so uh, so it's pretty tough to say to make generalizations broadly about gun owners quote unquote because of uh, all the different uh, uh, issues that play in different geographies and so on and so forth okay that makes sense all right moving on to our next question uh, John let's throw this one at you uh, in the gang culture, most of our major cities, uh, so to speak, what impact does the gang culture have on gun violence in the inner city and elsewhere? Well, gang violence uh, has a major impact on the, uh, most uh, cities as well as in the rural areas. 
uh, many gangs are formed because of a need uh, for safety, security, uh, a family, and a host of other reasons. And uh, in the inner cities uh, like Chicago, which has one of the best gang units, they're finding that gang violence is a major uh, problem in Chicago and in many cities. Uh, one of the things that uh, many of the small cities are trying to do is trying to determine if they have a gang, a gang culture in their cities. But the the gang culture has a a major impact, adverse impact on most cities and in some rural areas. As as part of gangs, uh, uh, many of them have guns and they don't hesitate to shoot. And I uh, was a police officer in Compton, California, and even then we had, and today we have a, a gang that's almost all over the United States called the Crips and the Blood, and the Crips uh, uh, would shoot a blood if a blood is, uh, you know, wearing his colors, and a blood would shoot a Crip if a Crip is wearing blue in his territory. You also have um, gang violence uh, that, where people within these gangs feel that it is a sending a message that they have street creds when they kill someone or when they shoot someone or when they commit a number of offenses, criminal acts. Uh, many of these gang members, uh, part of the initiation process, involves killing a person as well as committing a crime. Uh, one of the small crimes that they commit is going to a store and pick up an item and walk out with a price tag on it. And uh, the stronger initiation involves taking a gun and doing a drive-by shooting or shooting someone. Um, I think gangs have a major impact uh, in the uh, violence, gun violence in inner cities and elsewhere in rural as, as well. Ironically, I was in a little town called Cleveland, Mississippi, a couple of years ago, and that city has a population less than 20,000, and there were gangs in that city, and I uh, noted that there was a lot of gang activity, shootings and stuff like that. And I was surprised because I thought it was such a rural, uh, out-of-the-way city. And uh, But many cities throughout the United States are plagued with these gangs, and they're not just black gangs. We have black, uh, yellow, brown, and uh, other ethnic gangs that are, are bad. The president talks about the MS-13 uh, gangs, and uh, we do have a lot of gangs uh, in all over the place. And the MS-13 in New York and other cities are probably the most violent gangs, but they do. They perpetrate a lot of crimes, and they have a tremendous impact on gun violence in any, any city or town where they are located. And I think it is a key issue that we have to dismember, dismember, or eradicate these gangs in order to curtail gun violence. Yes, I agree, and thank you for that. Uh, our next question, Bindu, I'd like to ask you this next one. This has to relate to bullying, as we know, it's a serious problem among our youth today, and it seems to be a growing one as well. And in some cases, 
bullying has been associated with some of the recent mass school shootings. So please tell me your thoughts on the issue of bullying and as and how it relates to gun violence and what can we do? Well, there is already some evidence on um, bullying and gun carrying at school. So it could be, again, it's the perpetrator versus the victim. Sometimes the victim becomes the perpetrator. So there's, there's it's a lot more nuance than we think it will be. So I think, um, you know, I'm not very, um, uh, very aware of the uh, most recent um, research out there in terms of linking the two, bullying as well as um, youth um, gun carrying. Um, so I think, um, you know, maybe someone else can take up this, this question. The only thing that I know about school shooting is, you know, that we are, what we know about school shooting is based on a small sample size. And a lot of psychologists have come up with several theories and they're all, it's a lot of, it's a lot, you know, some of them say it is, they are the, the, uh, the kid who actually shoots, the shooter was bullied as compared to, you know, we don't know the rest of it. So why do kids kill, right? Is it solely because of bullying? Um, again, so as, as a data person, I look at the, uh, the, um, the information that we have and we don't have enough numbers to say something very definitively. But again, I could be wrong. I mean, you know, maybe someone else from the panel can answer this a little better. Okay. Well, let me uh, let me open it up to the panel. If anyone wants to weigh in on this topic, uh, bullying and gun violence in school shootings. Anyone their thoughts? I. Um... I think that bullying, bullying certainly is a major problem in most all of our schools. And I think a lot of it can be curtailed from the home as well as uh, those bullies, those people who are doing the bullying, uh, parents can correct that. And also the school officials should be able to pick up on or to detect bullying and to curtail it at, at that level. Uh, bullying certainly... Uh, makes a person feel an outsider, and as a reason, sometimes it's in the shooters that we've had involved in schools, you will find that many of the shooters were isolated from the core uh, students, and they some were bullied and some were out of the peer, out of uh, peer, not in any type of peer group, and isolationist. Um, I think the uh, the school should be uh, should have a lot of classes involved in uh, bullying as well as should involve parents and the community. I think the community, the church, and the schools uh, should play a main factor in, re- in reducing uh, bullying. And I think that these are some of the institutes that institution that we really should rely upon the schools, the churches, uh, and the community, community groups. And I think all adults involved in the educational process should be able to determine when a student has been bullied and how to address that, appropriately address that. 
that issue. And I think uh, schools should be, I think if we're realistic, we should realize that many of the urban schools, uh, there's a tremendous amount of fighting that takes place inside of these schools. And a lot of these fights almost on a daily basis, sometimes three and four fights uh, take place in these schools. And many of them are not just bullying. Many of them are kids coming from different environments and different home lives and uh, that uh, have issues in conflict, handling certain conflicts. And I think in our schools today, we should teach uh, conflict resolution as opposed to letting uh, students uh, just resort to violence. Uh, We should teach conflict resolution. We should uh, teach behavior modification classes, classes as to teaching students how to respond to a certain negative uh, stimuli. And I think that is something that we really should uh, stress. And I think as it involves gun, a lot of times in the schools, uh, along with the bullying, uh, some of the kids who are bullied, they have a tendency to uh, go to school with a gun to show that, you know, they can uh, confront the bully and sometimes they decide to kill a bunch of people in the process, and at that time it's too late. But I think education is a very meaningful and a necessary process in conflict resolution, detection of bullying, and decision-making. I think they should be taught, and even in the middle schools where bullying really uh, is usually starts or perhaps is more manifested. Uh, but I think education is a a, a very uh, necessary uh, yes, ingredient yes. Uh, process to handle this. Desiree, um, yes. Desiree this is uh, Mike, and I'll be real quick. The, the, just a, one, one quick thing on the bullying. I think, first of all, I think the, the, the bullying topic is a huge topic and has been for many years in the United States, and I think there's a lot more awareness of it. But if you're going to draw a line between uh, bullying and school shootings, you can't uh, draw that line without also having included in the line the topic of safe storage of firearms, because the victim of bullying frequently is looking for the easy gun that is often uh, lying unsecured in the house, and then they turn around and they go to school, and that's where you have your trouble. And so uh, I just want to make, make sure that we are recognize that point. Uh, good point. Yes, there's many different elements that all affect this issue. Now, I know um, we are getting close to our first break in the program, so I do want to invite all of our listeners, if they do have a question or if they would like to chime in, and, uh, you know, have a discussion with us. We'd love to get your input. Please give us a call. The number is area code 563-999-3660. Again, that's 563-999-3660. You are listening to the Stand Against Gun Violence Town Hall Meeting on the CWR Talk Network. I'm Desiree Peoples, and... We're going to go into our first break, so stay with us. We'll be right back in a few minutes. You're broken down and Thank you for joining us for today's Stand Against Gun Violence Town Hall event, a presentation of the CWR Talk Network. We will return in a moment.
The CWR Talk Network is not just another talk radio network. We are the champion for important causes and issues like financial literacy. That is why so many people listen to the Lionel Shipman Shape Your Finances show. Lionel is a seasoned veteran in the finance industry, but more importantly, Lionel cares about people. He shares his vast knowledge of the finance world in a personal way that goes beyond dollars and cents, with advice that makes sense. So let Lionel help you get your finances in order, or avoid costly errors in judgment that may be devastating to you and your family. Listen to the Lionel Shipman Check Your Finances show every Tuesday exclusively on the CWR Talk Network at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central. listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag one million strong. CWR Talk Network is not just another talk radio network. We are the champion for important causes and issues like fighting domestic violence. Domestic violence survivor Shereen Rice discusses how domestic violence affects all of us on her show, Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse. Shereen interviews other survivors of domestic violence who share their very personal experiences in hopes of encouraging listeners who may be undergoing domestic violence to get out of that dangerous situation and how they may do that in order to avoid the dangerous consequences if they don't. Join Shireen and her guests every second and fourth Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central Time, exclusively on the CWR Talk Network. back to the Stand Against Gun Violence, a presentation of the CWR Talk Network. And now we return to the discussion with our moderator, Ms. Desiree Peoples. And yes, welcome back to the discussion. We have been covering quite a lot on the topic of gun violence this evening. And again, we invite you to join us with your questions, comments, observations, or feedback. That number, again, is area code 563-999-3660. I'm Desiree Peoples. I will be moderating this discussion tonight and continuing on in uh, covering every aspect that we can cover <laughs> in the amount of time given as it relates to gun violence. Now, I'd like to go ahead and start this hour off by addressing the entire panel. Please, uh, anyone who feels compelled to do so, I invite you to comment. Uh, this question is about the organizations that are working independently to solve the problem of gun violence. 
Recently, there has been a powerful youth movement with nationwide marches, protests, even some social media mentions. And in spite of all this, uh, it seems that little has been accomplished to really actually reduce gun violence. Why does it seem that uh, little progress and little change has been made as it relates to this panel? Um, this is Mike. I'll, I'll get started. Um, I would actually disagree uh, that uh, little has been accomplished. In fact, if you look around since Parkland, uh, a number of states have been passing red flag laws, which I'm sure we'll get into in this uh, discussion. Um, there are uh, strengthening of and closing of loopholes. Uh, Oregon has passed a, a uh, law that um, closes what's known as the boyfriend loophole, so it's more expansive uh, uh, definition of an intimate partner as it relates to domestic violence. I also think as it relates to the student movement, uh, we're in the first pitch of the first inning as it relates to the student movement. Uh, that's uh, got a mm. lot of momentum uh, and will continue and be a real force uh, going forward. Um, so uh, it's sometimes uh, dispiriting because the numbers are so bad and it's sometimes difficult to see uh, progress. But the reality is that the gun uh, laws in our country are a complex patchwork of federal law, state and local law, and even degrees of enforcement of existing laws and so forth. And so sometimes it's difficult to see the progress. But actually, when I look at it, I think that there is a lot of progress being made. And I think that the progress is also being made towards mobilizing uh, voters around this and people starting to vote with this as a first, second or third level issue that that drives their voting decisions. So I think that we're seeing a, a, a change. And sometimes when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see. But, you know, 10 years later and you look back and you're like, no, there is something happening there. And I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah, I do agree. I do agree that awareness has increased for sure. I do, Bindu. Um, so, um, great job, Mike. I, I, I think that's what it is. It's going to be incremental, and it's going to take a long time. And uh, finally, after 10 years, we're going to see that change. However, with all that, we still have – we're in a place where there is a lot that's being done. But at this point, we can pause, look back and reassess, um, and, and then change a few things that we've done wrong. So, you know, I'm being a little bit critical about a few things, but not everything. I mean, great things have been done. But um, one, one thing is important is that, you know, when we leave the front door open, but make sure the windows are nicely bolstered so that, um, <laughs> you know, we're not going to get robbed, the front door is still open. We haven't done anything about the federal level implementation of background check laws. That's the biggest hole that's, that's going to be there. And the reason why that is a big problem is that the state borders are porous. So guns, you know, because we ah. have reciprocity laws, which allows the guns to go back and forth, and we, we, don't, we can't uh, register anyone um, uh, who has bought a gun because that's considered illegal. So there are a few overall, you know, national level laws that we have not really implemented. President Obama tried to do that, but, uh, you know, it really failed. But we really need to have, we can't push for small things because, yes, it is because we do small things because it's doable. But at this 
point, since we've done so much, since we've achieved so much, I think it's time to push for a bigger goal, uh, a more comprehensive background check law. We can go back to that. Because truth be told, we already have a whole lot of guns in this country. And guns are bi- not biodegradable. It doesn't, it's not like clothes that you get soiled and you can throw it away. It's not like cigarettes mm-hmm. and smoke it. And, uh, it it's stands. So we need to have those background check laws. And it's time for us to, to really push that forward. I think there's a lot being done uh, involving the background check. And I think there's a lot that needs to be done, a lot of activities that need to be done to direct our youth in uh, different directions uh, away from violence. And I know that a lot of the youth today seem to think that there is a breakdown in communication between the youth and our politicians and the marches that they have had. Many of the youth don't seem to think that their concerns are being uh, satisfactorily addressed. And I think we should... uh, there should be a lot of efforts and energy directed toward um, helping uh, these the youth uh, resolve these issues. I do know that the Department of Justice, uh, juvenile justice system, does meet out a lot of money to a lot of the states, and the money that is allotted to the states go into areas of crime uh, prevention and crime solving and to help many of the youth, and I would think that, and I believe, I'm not sure that the Department of Justice, juvenile justice system has uh, allocated additional money directed towards this issue. Okay. This is Dakota. Um, I would definitely agree with what Mike said in the beginning, that they, it might seem that there has been no progress made, and I think that's because we all really look to the federal government for policy change. And that's what's, you know, in the media and what we hear about. And we kind of ignore what's happening at the state and local level. But there's incredible work being done at the state and local level. And my boss has actually been working at the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence for 30 years. And he says that the last five years have been the most productive in his entire career. And a lot of states that are traditionally more conservative, like Florida, are now passing gun violence prevention laws. And now, this year alone, eight states um, passed the extreme risk protection law, which is also called the red flag law. And that would have never happened, you know, 10 years ago. So I think that it's important that we are focusing on the federal government still, um, but we should also look at the state levels because that is where most of our gun laws are being passed right now. And especially where we've been with Congress, which is so deadlocked. Um, you know, there is the bill that would create a universal background check law in the Senate only has 40 co-sponsors. So because of that, we have to create and pass these state laws. But hopefully, you know, depending on the election results, I know Nancy Pelosi has said that if she becomes the speaker, that she wants to get universal background checks passed within the first 30 days, first 100 days, excuse me, of Congress. Okay, thank you. Now that leads me into my next question about everyday Americans who have their own ideas about gun violence and what it means. So we have the issue of, of awareness, 
and education. But how can we get everyday people to be more involved or to be more active in some way as it relates to preventing or addressing gun violence? Um, I'm opening opening this up to the entire panel. Um, I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll jump in. This is Mike to get you started. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's uh, there's two things that uh, I I can think of right off the bat. Um, there are a couple of great uh, gun violence prevention organizations, uh, Every Town for Gun Safety and Giffords, and there are there are others. Dakota is part of one. Uh, and but I'm thinking about the Every Town site and the Giffords site. Both have excellent excellent information where you can go in for your state and see what the laws are and you can see how your state ranks compared to other states and you can see uh, how that has changed over time and i think that that's an amazing tool and getting people to realize that and just educate themselves is a great way to uh, uh to to make people uh, aware of these kind of this patchwork of laws that i had mentioned uh earlier um the other thing too is there are uh I think there's going to be an increasing degree of parents uh, starting to ask a certain question when kids are going over to play. And uh, we're used to parents saying, Hey, you know, my kid's going over to your house. Uh, You know, do you know, what are your rules around the internet or TV or this, that, and the other, but increasingly parents are going to be asking, uh, do you have weapons in the house and uh, are they secured? If so. Um, And, you're going to, I, it's almost like uh, one of our panelists earlier was talking about smoking and PSAs and so forth. Uh, a lot of that was tied to a cultural attitudinal shift that happened over a period of time. I expect to see that continuing to happen. And when people get that question, it's going to raise the stigma associated with unsecured weapon storage. And, and, and you know, you can say, hey, listen, I don't trust my you know, little son who can get into mischief to not find your weapon that you think is hidden underneath the sweaters in your closet. Right. So these Mm -hmm. are are the sorts of things that are going to change. I think people's attitudes over time. Okay. Anyone else on the panel want to chime in? All right. Uh, So since we are on the topic of, I guess, children and how we were discussing earlier about gun violence in schools, I'd like to know, Dakota, what are your thoughts on arming teachers in our public schools, arming our teachers with guns? Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> that is just absolutely ridiculous that anyone would think that that is a good idea. One, because we know the research shows that just access to a gun does not make you safer, which is things we talked about earlier. Also, um, I think it was Mike that talked about when you're in the, like, fight or flight mode. Obviously, mm-hmm. if a teacher is not trained, which, as of anyone, if they are not trained, how do we expect them to know what to do? Um, also, I think with children, I think about the suicide problem. And kids are, you know, will look through things. And what if they happen to find a teacher's gun? And then, you know, want to turn that on themselves because they're depressed or suicidal or one way or another. But the fact that we just think, or people in this country think that putting guns in the school will somehow make them safer is, based on the research, is just completely laughable that anyone could think that. I think uh, if, I, if I may, this is Mike. Um, 
Desiree. Um, I think I, uh, one thing that this is instructive, uh, and you do feel like you're in some sort of an Alice in Wonderland sort of a alternative reality when you're talking about this as a legitimate uh, a political issue or an idea. But one of the things that, that I think for me helps underscore is really what the NRA, what their primary responsibility is. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of times people think, you know, they associate the NRA with, you know, uh, they kind of allow the NRA to say, you know, we're going to, uh, we're here to protect the Second Amendment and so forth. Really, the NRA is about um, advancing the interests and growing the top line revenue of gun manufacturers. And so uh, one of the ways that you do that when you're in business, and I love the point earlier about uh, guns are not biodegradable. Um, you Maybe you've seen a commercial or two along the way where a uh, a father or a grandfather is handing a cherished heirloom shotgun over to a son and to bring him part of the hunting tradition, that is actually a terrible thing for the gun industry. They do not like that. <laughs> you don't get to sell a new gun when grandpa gives a favorite gun over to, uh, to a grandson. And so as a result, the, to me, this thing about the teacher and arming the teachers is frankly a genius way to sell a lot of guns to a brand new target market. Um, it went from it's kind of the, the gun man, the gun industry has hopped from uh, being about the hunters to really peddling fears and tying into people's worries about public safety. And uh, this is just a growth strategy to, to uh, add dollars to the top line and the growth of those businesses. And once you understand that, the whole teacher uh, issue kind of falls into place and you understand it better. This is okay. uh, I agree that uh, guns should not be. Teachers should not be armed. I think teachers should be uh, in school to teach and provide guidance. I think uh, many schools in many areas have gone into what they call uh, resource offices. They have, in some schools, they have unified, uh, uniformed police officers on the premises, and some schools also have a, a police car parked in the parking lot visible for the students. And some schools have contemplated, and I don't know if many have put in end uh, metal detectors for students coming into the schools, but I, I totally disagree that uh, having the teachers armed with uh, firearms, I don't think it would help in any way, and I, I really, uh, I think it would be more detrimental. I think it would afford opportunities for kids to uh, maybe take the gun away from the teacher and cause uh, an incident. I think teachers should teach. And I think by having resource officers in the school will alleviate the need for having teachers armed. It's, it's also important to understand it from the numbers perspective. So school shootings, 2% of all the gun violence can be explained by school shootings. And then for that to, you know, <laughs> to take dollars, public dollars, and, and um, uh, buying guns for teachers, it, it just doesn't make sense. And as Mike was saying, this is just about money. This is just how to generate revenue for um, the companies. And NRA is 100% behind this, and this, this should be avoided. This is such a stupid idea. But to also add to that, uh, schools in the past have always been considered safe havens mm-hmm. and safe environments. And we even have today, we have uniform and some armed police officers inside of our churches in the United States today. And we have had incidents of churches 
robberies uh, and shootings taking place in churches. But I still believe, even though I think the church, I do agree that you should have uh, armed uniformed people in the churches because uh, many churches have large amounts of money, and generally money is what draws a lot of criminals uh, to commit offenses of robbery and that sort of thing. But I think the school should not have the teacher's uniform. I would be for I have the teachers armed. I would be more for having a resource officer, whether in uniform or ununiformed, but armed, and maybe one or two in school premises, depending on the size of the school. Yeah, because that brings up the other issue where where there has been talk about having maybe some type of armed security, maybe not arming the teachers, but having armed security or armed police officers on campuses as another way to protect students and to, I guess, eliminate or curb down gun violence? Any thoughts on that? I would, I would recommend having the, this is John, I would recommend having armed police officers as opposed to armed security or having police officers there in a security uh, position. And the reason for that, if a major crime or major shooting took place, the police officer could summon immediate help, whereas a security person would have to call the police for additional resources. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Uh, I'd like to go into, I guess, what most people consider the division when it comes to gun violence. There seems to be a divide of the argument for gun ownership versus the arguments for gun control. Uh, Some people think they work hand in hand. Some people believe that they're actually working in opposition. Michael, I would like to get your thoughts on that. I think, well, I think the, the, I guess, I guess the the thing that I'd say about that is um, I think the uh, it's a false alternative. Um, The, the outrage merchants of the world are going to want us to fall into kind of our two separate camps and, and many of us uh, follow the suit. But in fact, um, uh, there are um, the vast majority of gun owners are uh, safe, law-abiding uh, citizens. And so uh, kind of like, you know, demonizing uh, gun ownership broadly is uh, unhelpful and also uh, misses the point. I mean, uh, the, I, I know people who are gun owners in uh, rural areas who are better naturalists and more passionate about protecting their environment than any naturalists or environmentalists that, that you might be able to think of. Now, and so the, probably the place to start is to say, the, where, where do we have broad agreement? And the uh, topic that was brought up uh, earlier and kind of addressed a, a little bit a couple times around uh, background checks, comprehensive background checks. I mean, this is an area that polls really high. Uh, Quinnipiac had a poll that was as high as 97% of, uh, of respondents said they favored background checks. And, you know, even if it's less than that, even if it's 90% or, or 85%, that's more than the number of people who say they like chocolate ice cream, right? So if you can get, if you, how often do we have that kind of a broad coalition? And that's gun owners, that's military veterans, that's hunters, those are people who are like, well, yeah, I mean, you should have comprehensive background checks. Uh, and so I think that the key is not to create kind of false divisions between two kind of like sides to the issue, 
but in fact to say where is their commonality, where is their overlap in our Venn diagram where we can work together to, to make some improvements, uh, and, and that's probably the place to start. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Bindu, do you have any thoughts on uh, gun ownership versus gun control and how it relates? Well, so, yeah, so um, I kind of agree with what Mike Mike was saying earlier. So there's that commonality. But, you know, we did a study and we started asking people about what they think about um, you know, comprehensive background checks. They were like, yeah, of course, that should be done. But then we started explaining, do you know what actually happens when you, when, when you mean comprehensive background checks? You, do you do background checks, and sometimes you might not be eligible to buy a gun. So in that case, so then it was like, okay, now that's a slippery slope into, you know, that they use the, that place is used so often, slippery slope into taking away guns. So it, it starts from there. So it was kind of interesting to understand that uh, even though um, at uh, first they would say, yes, we are all for background, background checks, but once they really understand the background checks and what what is the result of that um, background check, then they, they sort of lose interest. But, you know, it's not like um, they lose 100% interest, but they're like, you know, that's still needed. You don't, then if we ask them back, mm-hmm. you're sure that you don't want anyone else um, who's not supposed to have a gun, having a gun, and then, um, you know, try try to harm you. So, so it, it's just, they oscillate back and forth between, okay, with, with me, it could be different. With another person, it could be uh, maybe that, that's okay. And it, it was just very interesting to watch that, that discussion that um, they would have amongst themselves about what is the implication of having a comprehensive background check. I think, uh, mm-hmm. this is John, I think, I'm sorry, did I cut you off? No, 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 go ahead. I think what is very important is that sellers of guns should ensure uh, that the person who's purchasing the gun has a training on as to how to use a gun. An example of that for youth or young hunters, uh, before they are able to get a hunting license, in many states they have to have so many hours of training. And I think that should be one of the necessary uh, prerequisites for the purchase of any gun, whether a rifle or handgun, uh, from gun dealers that they have either certification of how to use the gun or they receive some type of training how to use the gun. Okay, thank you. Um, I'd like to address Dakota, and I wanted to get her input on, I guess, the mental health connection and the suicide connection as it relates to gun violence. Dakota, in your experience and just from your background, do you believe that if someone is looking to, quote, commit suicide, is a gun the first option of choice, or how does it really fall into the picture? Is it just kind of, is it accessibility, or is that something that you have experienced that has been the the goal or the result? So accessibility is really a huge factor in that. 
And we also know from data that men are more likely to use a firearm as a suicide attempt method, while women are actually more likely to attempt suicide by overdose or by cutting. But those mm -hmm. two methods, overdose and cutting, result in deaths about 1% to 3% of the time. So in 97% of the time, that means that they live and often do not go on to later die by suicide. Whereas if you attempt with a gun, there's a 90% chance that you will die. So that's a huge reason why men have a higher, much higher suicide rate than women in general is because of the firearms. And specifically, the population that is most likely to die by firearm suicide is middle-aged white men. And then also Native Americans have a really high firearm suicide rate. So I know Mike talked a lot about this earlier, but really having a gun unlocked and loaded greatly increases your risk of suicide. And because the time between deciding to attempt to take your life and then actual the time between deciding being passive suicidal to actually deciding to take your life can be as little as five minutes. So anything that's really putting time between a person and a gun will completely save lives. And so that's why having a, your firearm safely stored, locked and unloaded actually increases your risk of survival if you are suicidal because maybe when you actually take that gun you realize oh you don't you know you had that time to think even if it's just a few minutes oh okay okay um anything else uh the panel i would like to open it up to you actually if there's something specific you'd like to touch on tonight that we have not already covered is there anything, uh, panelists, that you'd like to discuss? I would like to, I'm John, I would like to discuss an area that um, police are aware of, but very seldom get much attention, and it's called suicide by cop. And that is when we have a person, whether deranged or whether they uh, decide to commit suicide and are sane, but they lack the nerve to do it themselves, so they create a situation where they will be killed by other policemen. Mm. And that happens uh, frequently within the, the United States where a person will approach the police. And uh, uh, one uh, case in specific involved a uh, shooting up in uh, Missouri right after the Micah Brown shooting where there was a young man approached, I guess, it was a St. Louis City police officer telling him, shoot me, shoot me. He was deranged, and he continued to approach the police officer and was shot and killed. And that was a typical suicide by cop uh, situation. When I was a police officer eons ago in Compton, California, I encountered uh, situations where a person would come out of their house uh, they would tell the uh, family that they were going to kill someone. They wanted to kill themselves. They were going to kill the policeman. And when a family member called the policeman, the person would come out of the house with a gun and shoot in the air, not shooting at a pol uh, policeman, but shoot up in the air. And the police responded not knowing that the person was not shooting at the police car or the police uh, would 
shoot and kill that person, and it was a normal police procedure at that time, as is today when someone is shooting, uh, not knowing whether they're shooting is to take that person's life. And that does happen. It's a line of um, a situation that hasn't properly been addressed, but there are a lot of suicides that do take place that way. Suicide by cop, it's called. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, if you are listening live, we invite your phone calls right now, area code 563-999-3660. Again, that's 563-999-3660. All right, continuing on in our discussion, uh, Bindu, I'd like to go back and talk about the long-term effects of gun violence on survivors. I know uh, you had mentioned earlier before that that's not always something that's apparent. Most people just think about the immediate vic- immediate victims. Right. But when we, when we think about the long oh, when we think about the long-term effects on survivors of gun violence, how do you see that relating to, I guess, future laws that will be put into place and maybe um, treatment for that type of that type of uh, survival. So, so this is a very important subject, and which is almost always overlooked. So what we see is that, you know, for every three people who are shot and killed, there are about seven who survived this injury. So, and about among that seven, three would, would, you know, all these seven go into the ER, and about three would get patched up and they would go because people have these unintentional injuries mostly and they patch, they patch up and go. And the rest of them, four, will go into hospitals because they have retained more severe injuries. So what I did is, you know, we used uh, data from California, both emergency as well as hospitalization data. And then we pulled all that data and we found that most of these of the, most of the victims of gun violence, they have, that. this is including both ED as well as ED plus hospitalization people, but most of them have either um, ED or they, uh, sorry, uh, Medicaid insurance, or they just don't have health insurance. So that itself mm. poses a big problem, right? So, and, and why is that it poses a big problem? Medicaid in itself, they have a lot of, um, um, ceilings. You can't spend um, uh, um, more than a certain amount on certain injuries. And if you're self, self-pay or if you just don't have health insurance, you have to come back to the ED in case things go really bad and you cannot get proper hospitalization, proper um, medical care after that. So why am I worried about proper medical care after that? My research shows that in the next six months, at least about um, you know, 10 to 12% will come back to the hospital. And um, if you get, um, like for example, if a bullet shred your artery or your major artery or your vein, which we call a vascular injury, about 20%, 20-25% will come back during the first six months, which means that they will continue to have a lot of problems. Usually, it takes about one to two years for them to just survive that preliminary, that injury, that acute injury. 
and they would have multiple surgeries to fix, uh, the, fix their problems. And then they would be, you know, almost ready to get back to the world in, in, in a different form. Never, they never go back to who they are. And this is regardless of, you know, whether they are being a crime perpetrator or not. <laughs> People act the same way. And once they are, in the, uh, you know, they, they start uh, going to, oh, to work or some of them, they, they don't have work anymore because they took a really long time to recover. And they have to um, rely on their um, extended family, sometimes friends. They lose social structures. They, don't have, they can't go back to where they were. Some of them cannot even remember things. So, for example, and this is anecdotal, and, you know, I work with survivors a great deal. One, mm-hmm. one the lady, she, she was shot in the head. So a bullet is supposed to just graze her skull. Everybody told her, oh, you're so lucky. And she, of course, she says that um, too. She lives in the, um, in the project. She says, okay, this is a, a, a low-income uh, neighborhood that I'm living in, and there's crime everywhere, and this is all I can afford to live. And, of course, the bullet um, uh, grazed her skull. She has fragments of the uh, bullet in her skull embedded there, and all um, people told her, was, hey, you're very lucky. Yay, go, go back to life. She couldn't go back in life. This haunts her. Mm-hmm. She's constantly picking at herself. She, her, um, uh, you know, her eating habits changed. She gained weight. She got diabetes. And later on, the social problem is, you know, of course she has to go to her psychiatric appointments. And then she has to um, uh, work, too. So what kind of work can, can she go and do? She's like, if I hear a loud noise, I jump up. And she has PTSD because of that. So she can't work. So she lost her job. And she, she can't drive her car. And, you know, it's like you, you said after that bullet, a lot of things go wrong. So there are several psychosocial outcomes social outcomes, and also medical outcomes that occur. So my research is showing that metabolic disorders, risk of metabolic disorders are increasing among these people because what they are having is an exposure to very high level of violent trauma in their lives. And there is information out there that trauma increases the risk of chronic diseases such as metabolic disorders, cardiovascular events. So what we do is try to prevent primary prevention. Okay, we, of course, and we need to do that. But what we do is we just completely forget about the secondary prevention. How do these people get back to their life? And I, I and there are really no no ways to to help these people unless we have Medicare for all. Like the moment a person is shot, they need to have Medicare. They need to be put on Medicare. If you have something you have to do, please make sure that their health care is taken care of. Yes, I agree. And that leads me to another point where I know we're talking about victims who have been physically injured by guns in some way or another. But how do we address, let's take, children, for example, who are exposed to gun violence at a young age, how does that affect their 
emotional and mental development and, and, and stability as children. If they, you know, if they're living in a neighborhood where they witness, you know, shootings or, or maybe they, they saw their parents getting shot or, or whatever the case may be. When, when young children, and, and that's what I mean, you know, maybe before school age or maybe just really young children, uh, what has been your experience on the long-term effects of children exposed to gun violence at a very, very young age? So what you're talking about is, you know, having being an indirect survivor of gun violence, right? Yes. So they are, they are being exposed to violence every day of their life. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we were, I worked at Boston University, and we had this meeting where we were talking about, okay, you know, um, the housing de- development projects. So there are a lot of researchers, researchers which go and they do a lot of good research projects here. Some of them do research to reduce obesity. So, you know, they have a gym there. They have a nice garden there. So they should go out and do all these things so that they say, you know, their, their obesity is reduced. However, they're sitting there and I say, how do you expect me to go and do all that? How do you expect me to get out of the house? I would not let my grandson out of the house because there is so much violence. So that itself, they're restricting their mobility because of that. And, 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 and that's just the beginning of things. So, and there mm-hmm. is a lot of evidence which shows that, um, you know, ex- early exposure, we call it ACEs, Adverse uh, Childhood, um, I forget, Adverse Childhood, uh, childhood Exposures, is, um, even in, in, it, has a, it has a long-term effect throughout their life. So it depends on how early a child is exposed to violence. So um, that's already been shown that those effects last a lifetime. Yes. Well, thank you. Uh, You are listening to the CWR Talk Network Stand Against Gun Violence Town Hall. We are live with an expert panel, and we are getting information about gun control and how it relates to all of us today. We are going to be going into a short break, but if you are listening, we do invite your calls. The number is 563-999-3660. Please come back with us as we move into more talks about gun control and gun violence. Thank you. Please stay with us. You're broken down and Thank you for joining us for today's Stand Against Gun Violence Town Hall event a presentation of the CWR Talk Network. We will return in a moment. The CWR Talk Network is not just another talk radio network. We are the champion for life empowerment programs like Career Reels with Carolyn. We understand that many of our listeners need career advice to advance their careers to the next level and others need advice on finding a job. We have been blessed with the addition of Ms. Carolyn Owens to our network. Carolyn is the chairwoman and CEO of Infinity Coaching Incorporated, which provides career, leadership, and life coaching that moves individuals forward, allowing them to take command of their lives. 
With over 25 years of proven experience, she is a leading authority on leadership and professional development and has worked with and trained top leaders across the globe. Her show, Career Reels with Carolyn, may be heard the second Monday of every month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern and 6 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Career Reels is a show that discusses how you can become the star of your life. Carolyn and her guests will share with you tips and strategies on how you can reach and stay at the top of your game. You'll also hear about hot topics and trends that can make a difference in your career or business. So tune in the second Monday of each month to hear Career Reels live and get hired or take your career to the next level. For more information, visit Carolyn's page on our website at cwrtalknetwork.com. You're listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag one million strong. Welcome back to the Stand Against Gun Violence, a presentation of the CWR Talk Network. And now we return to the discussion with our moderator, Ms. Desiree Peoples. And thank you for joining us in our town hall discussion tonight, the Stand Against Gun Violence. Again, my name is Desiree Peoples, and I'll be your moderator for tonight's discussion. If you would like to join in on our discussion, we do extend that invitation to you. The phone number is 563-999-3660. Now we're moving into our third segment of the program tonight. We're going to be focusing on stricter gun control, whether or not it's the answer. Now I'd like to uh, kind of go over something that was said by economist Richard Florida, who took a look at gun deaths and other social indicators. He found that higher populations, more stress, more immigrants, and more mental illness actually did not correlate with more gun deaths. However, he did find one telling correlation, and that was the state's tighter gun control laws actually have fewer gun-related deaths. And you can read more about this in the geography of gun deaths, and we'll have that link for you in our show notes. But I'd like to open this question up to uh, Dakota and Michael. Uh, What do you think are key gun control laws, and what are they supposed to accomplish, and why or why not are they effective? So there are a few different, or there's obviously a lot of different gun violence prevention laws. Um, The first one that we've talked a little bit about are background checks and the need for universal background checks. Because Mm -hmm. background checks right now at the federal level, they are not required for private gun purchases. So that's kind of what people call the gun show loophole. And so in some some states, you can buy a gun without a background check when you're buying at a gun show or from another private seller. And so it's important that we close those loopholes like that and implement universal background checks. 
But that is, there's other laws that are even more narrow and can make a huge difference and are already showing to make a big difference at the state levels. So one of those laws is called the Extreme Risk Protection Order, also called the Gun Violence Restraining Order or sometimes a red flag law. And those, these are state laws that allow for law enforcement and in some states, family members to petition the court to have firearms temporarily removed from people who pose an imminent threat to themselves or others, but are otherwise not prohibited from purchasing a gun. And these usually last for up to a year, but in California, they can last for two weeks. And then there's also the ex parte order, which is just usually a 72 hour order. And so there's research around Connecticut's gun removal law, which is just requires law enforcement to petition the court. And it's found that for every 10 to 20 gun removals issued, one life was saved. And so that's pretty incredible that we know that this works. And earlier, before Parkland happened, there were only five states that had these laws in place. And now there are 13 states with these laws. And that includes Florida and Vermont, which are more gun-friendly states. And another evidence-based gun violence prevention law is a permit to purchase law, which requires a permit or license to purchase a gun. And nine states have these permit to purchase laws, which apply for both private sellers and licensed dealers. And there's also great research looking at Connecticut, which passed that law in 1995 and showing that it reduced almost immediately their suicide rate, their homicide rate, the diversion of guns from Connecticut. And then interestingly, in 2007, Missouri repealed their permit to purchase law. And at that time, immediately their gun homicide rate increased, their suicide rate increased, their gun trafficking from Missouri to other states increased. So we know that there are certain laws that work, and they are effective in the states that they take place in, but we need all the states to enact these evidence-based laws and then also to create federal laws that do the similar things. Hey, um, Desiree, this is Mike uh, following mm -hmm. up. Um, and I, there's nothing I can add or improve to Dakota's excellent answer. So, I mean, that was really good. Uh, she's right on the money and great information there. I want to just – touch on two things, actually one point, and then just a quick story. Um, uh, you had, in your formulation of the question, uh, and I've heard the term a few times tonight, uh, you used the term gun control. And then when Dakota was answering, she referred to gun violence protection. Uh, and increasingly in this debate, we see that we're all using different terms and the term gun control has fallen out of favor and, uh, and instead we hear more about gun violence protection or gun uh, safety, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of uh, weapons in this country and will continue to be, and focusing on safety and common sense uh, reform is a better way to go. Also, the term gun control tends to excite the uh, conspiracy uh, worries on the part of uh, uh, people who uh, are on the other side of this debate, uh, and so it's just something I want to point out. Then um, uh, back to the uh, topic of um, uh, universal background checks. I'm going to tell a quick story. This was just this year and very close to my home. Uh, a husband and wife uh, marriage was uh, on the rocks. Husband was suspicious of the wife's movements, had been tracking her, uh, had uh, eventually uh, 
it eventually uh, raped her, tied her up, and had a gun pointed to her head for a, for a couple of hours. Uh, she escaped, reported it to the police. The police arrested him, put him under a restraining order, and took his weapons from him. Um, he then uh, he was uh, released on bond, was staying at his parents' house, uh, got on the Internet, uh, was able to purchase a uh, Glock, uh, that's a handgun for those who aren't familiar with the, with the manufacturer, uh, from a 19-year-old locally. Uh, he did that transaction in a local Walmart parking lot, uh, and then proceeded to go over to his wife's home uh, and kill her in the driveway while their kids were in the house. And then as the police were converging on him, ran into the backyard and killed himself. Um, that, that story, that's a pretty typical story in this country. That happens quite often, something like that. Uh, women are on the receiving end of domestic violence in a massive way in this country. And so when we talk about universal background checks, sometimes they sound just like terms and so forth. But it's best to kind of keep those sorts of stories in mind because that's what's going on is when somebody can be under a restraining order, known to have uh, violent tendencies towards a spouse, and is able to go on the Internet and meet somebody in a Walmart parking lot and get a gun and and go murder somebody, that's when you know you've got a problem. Mm. All right. Thank you, Michael. As a matter of fact, I'd like to address this next question to you. And uh, what are your thoughts? How might the military serve as a model then for more rigorous requirements for civilian firearm ownership? Well, the military is, of course, and this is, this is uh, the same can be said, for, obviously, for law enforcement, but the military is a very, very high-functioning gun culture. Uh, the military is about weapons, utilizing weapons, uh, and yet um, has really actually very, very strict um, – uh, protocols around when you get to have your weapon and and uh, what you can cannot do with it. And I, to the extent that I think it actually surprises a lot of civilians. So, for instance, civilians are often surprised to hear how infrequently somebody in the military actually ever has access to their weapon. When you're on base, uh, as long as you're not in a, a some sort of a, a operational war zone, when you're on base, you, you're not armed. Uh, the military police are, are uh, given that responsibility to protect the base. You're walking around the base without any weapons. The, your weapon is locked up in an arms room. And the only time you're going to get access to your weapon and live ammunition is generally when you're on the firing line uh, and you're going through training. Uh, the other thing, too, is when you think about training, the military has um, extensive de facto background checks before you ever get near a weapon. You're forced to go through a tremendous amount of training. You have to learn how to, how to clean, how to sight, how to disassemble, reassemble, uh, clear a jam, uh, and, and operate your weapon safely. Uh, no such uh, equivalent uh, training requirements are generally uh, required in the, uh, civilian, in the civilian world. Um, and then I'll kind of follow up with a, a, a quick story for myself. So when I went to Desert Storm, I drew live ammunition in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, loaded onto a military transport plane. We flew over into Saudi Arabia. We landed in, into uh, uh, an operational uh, part of the Desert Storm conflict. And the, one of the first things that happened is the Army took our ammunition away from us. Uh, and the reason why is because we were in an area where small arms fire was not expected. We had security in our post. And so the military decided there's no reason to have a bunch of 20-year-old soldiers who are wound up and armed walking around because, you know, accidents happen. 
And so they took the, the ammunition away. And then as the ground war, uh, uh, we moved north to get ready for the ground war and move into Kuwait and Iraq and so forth, our ammunition was returned to us just prior to that, uh, that conflict. When we were done with that mission, we redeployed up into northern Iraq for a refugee crisis situation that had been happening with the Kurdish population. And once again, because it was a humanitarian mission, our ammunition was once again uh, taken from us. Uh, the degree of training, safety, and also accountability within the military is completely different than what you see in the civilian world. And that's one reason why the military has so little uh, such a much smaller uh, degree of homicides and suicides than you would expect given the prevalence of the weapons. And it's because the military doesn't screw around with people uh, killing each other when uh, they want to make sure that people are ready to be fighting. All right. And expanding on that, I want to talk about the red flag law and how that relates. Can you ex- explain to that yeah. to our listeners? Well, I think uh, I think Dakota did a really good job of uh, talking about, listen, a lot of us have heard these stories of mass shootings recently and the warning signs that people saw in some of the perpetrators. Um, and uh, and uh, I think that um, uh, we've, Dakota and Bindu have also talked about um, the suicide issue. Uh, and and uh, when families see somebody that's in crisis, uh, they are the first who can you know, can sound the alarm and do something about it. And if there's a vehicle by which, while respecting the individual's due process, you can separate them from their weapons at a time of crisis, you're actually going to cut down on the likelihood of suicide and, um, and homicide. So uh, I have a, I had a friend um, in the military who was uh, in Iraq uh, recently, uh, this is a number of years ago, but was uh, really in a, in a moment and a time of crisis, uh, as, as many soldiers have, have gone through during these uh, conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, and was clearly demonstrating um, that he was in crisis. He was pulled out of the field, back to his unit, and at that moment, the commander should have uh, separated him from his weapon, uh, and that's the protocol, and the commander did not do that, uh, and my friend uh, committed suicide that afternoon. Um, and the... Uh, uh, the reality is that the red flag law concept is very much a part of an expectation and leaders are held accountable for making sure that they protect their soldiers and that includes soldiers who are in times of crisis. And we need to have that sort of an orientation in the civilian world as well. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, is do you think that would be effective just for the general population? Well, it, it, it certainly will be. Um, now, I don't want to suggest that a red flag law is going to uh, be a panacea. There are no panaceas in this, uh, in this debate. Um, and I also want to acknowledge how very difficult and what a big step it is for a family member to initiate something like this. Um, this is not an easy thing. But I also think that um, this is an area, again, I talked earlier about finding areas of broad consensus agreement. And the broad consensus agreement is that as long as the person's due process is respected, and in these laws and in these cases, there is a judicial process and an opportunity for appeal, if the due pro- and also an opportunity for reinstatement of gun ownership rights uh, after a period of time, maybe a year or so, then if those things are respected, then the vast majority of voters, gun owners and non-gun owners alike, 
tend to say, yeah, you know what? It's probably good that we separate weapons from people who are showing signs of being a danger to themselves or to others because it just makes you sick. Like, for instance, the Annapolis shooting, uh, the, uh, the, somebody had said to the police uh, a number of years prior to the shooter going into that newspaper office, she said, uh, I think the exact quote was, he's going to be your next mass shooter. You know, and when you hear things like that and then, you know, nothing was done and there's no facility to do something or people didn't step up. I think Maryland, in fact, maybe had that law in place, but but people were unable to step up. That's um, that just is aggravating and infuriating, I think, to a lot of the populace. And and, uh, therefore, I think that they can be helpful as long as we don't think that they themselves are going to kind of cure everything that's going on. All right. Absolutely. This is Dakota. And this law exactly what he said is not going to solve gun violence, but it is part of the gun violence puzzle and it will and has been showing to make a difference. And my organization is actually working to implement this law right now in Washington and Maryland and working with law enforcement and creating trainings. And, you know, it's, we're seeing great anecdotal evidence out of the states that have had these longer, like California. Um, and I know that from San Diego, I think they have documented all of these different cases of where they have initiated these extreme risk protection orders. And they have said that they have definitely stopped multiple mass shootings because of these laws. And so we know that it's working to stop mass shootings potential, you know, from the anecdotal evidence. And then the research from Connecticut's law shows that it works specifically with suicide prevention. And I think for me, one of the biggest things that is so great about the law is that it was developed with the intent to not stigmatize individuals with mental illness, because for the, when a court is deciding whether to um, give that extreme risk protection order, it's based on evidence-based risk factors for violence and mental illness is not listed in that. So it's really focusing on what are the actual risk factors for violence when deciding whether to issue that order or not. So Dakota then, do you think that's one possible solution then? Maybe some type of a uh, regulated, uh, either military-based or law enforcement-based training on gun safety? Do you think that could be something worth considering? So with some permit to purchase laws, um, when you apply for a permit, you actually do have to go through safety training. I know in Maryland that's the case. And I think, I mean, it's shown that that works. So laws that have these permit to purchase laws with the gun safety training, those states have lower gun violence in all of its forms, and it decreases after those laws are in place. And so that is part of the overall permit to purchase law where you also, there's a waiting period involved, a background check, fingerprinting. You know, it's not just the safety training, but it's been shown to work. And I think that if every state had an extreme risk protection order law and a permit to purchase law, that our country would be much, much safer. All right, John, what are your thoughts on this? I think we do have a kind of a red flag in the sense that prior felons, those who have been convicted of a felony, cannot possess firearms uh, in any state in the United States. That is a federal offense, and I think that is kind of a 
a red flag. But earlier I stated that I think that when a person is buying a firearm, whether it's a rifle or handgun, that they should have be certified that they have sufficient training in it. I know in the state of Arkansas to carry, we have what is called uh, concealed carry, and on the training that you receive there, you go to a range, you take a little test about when to use the firearm, but the other, the usage part of it, you go to a fire uh, firing range and fire about 12 rounds, and that's considered passing the test. But I think we should have uh, more involved tests and certification for those purchasing firearms, whether they are rifles or handguns. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, you know, just to be able to drive a car, like in Jersey, it takes like two years for kids to just get ready to be to, to drive the car by themselves. And I really, you just go in like two hours, you're in a class, you hear all these stuff from the instructor, and you're out. And that's, that's how you get certified. I don't think that really counts as, you know, a proper certification or training. Yeah, and that's exactly the, the connection I was thinking of as well is, is you know, same when you need to get a license to drive a car or a vehicle or anything. And a lot of times that starts at the, you know, the, the young level, you, well, I should say high school level for most children. And I'm wondering if, if something like that, uh, creating some type of a safety awareness as far as guns and, and making that available to students at a young age and educating them early would that be another layer of, I guess, protection, gun violence protection or gun safety? Right. Panel, anybody? I think that would be. Um, it was mentioned earlier that um, a grandfather gave uh, <laughs> his grandson an old rifle. Uh, I know that in certain communities, ethnic communities, um, uh, specifically the white community, a lot of um, young white youth are trained in firearms uh, with hunting, whether it's duck, bird, or deer, or other animals. They are trained by their fathers and grandparents. But in a lot of the other communities, the black community, there's less training in the black and brown community in the usage of firearms. And I guess that's because there's maybe less hunters but I think the training is a very uh, necessary thing uh, for um, firearms. I think it should be training should again should be required at the time of purchasing of a firearm. Um, and this is uh, <clears throat> Mike. Uh, the only thing I'll just amplify what Bindu said. Uh, the um, I just love the uh, the car metaphor. It's a fantastic way to look at this. And and by the way, we've taken the number of fatalities per road mile traveled in this country way down because we decided to get serious as a country about reducing vehicular deaths. Uh, and so we worked very, very hard on safety and attitudes and so forth. And we made uh, a huge improvement. Same thing is true for uh, drinking and driving. Um, and so these, uh, these attitudes uh, can change. Uh, but I think that when a lot of times uh, this is a very, very complex topic and you can get kind of wrapped around the axle with different uh, 
different uh, laws and different this and different that and arguments and points and counterpoints and all that. And if you get confused by it, I think sometimes it's good to just step back and say, you know what, why don't we treat these kind of like cars, right? We said we're going to have seatbelts. We said we're going to have airbags. We said that we have licensing. We say that now uh, if you're 16, maybe you can sort of drive, but you can't have your friends in the car um, and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I just think that that is a good way to just step back and think. Yes, I agree. And that also, uh, I think that kind of communicates the message that this is very important. This is not something to be, I guess, taken lightly. Um, And that there is some severe consequences if you are not properly trained and properly educated in the proper and safe use and ownership of guns. You are listening to the Stand Against Gun Violence Town Hall Discussion. My name is Desiree Peoples. I'm moderating tonight's discussion. If you would like to join us, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or observations, please call. The lines are open, 563-999-3660. Again, that's 563-999-3660. We're going to be moving into another break right now, and we will return in just a few minutes. You're broken down and tired. Thank you for joining us for today's Stand Against Gun Violence Town Hall event, a presentation of the CWR Talk Network. We will return in a moment. CWR Talk Network is not just another talk radio network. It's not just cliche. It's more than a slogan. It's our identity as America's voice for championing important causes and issues like reading literacy. Host and producer Joanne Burrow tackles this issue in a number of ways on her show, Read, Read, Read. The first and third Saturday of each month, 12 p.m. Eastern and 11 a.m. Central Time. Read, Read, Read is more than a program. It is an initiative started by Ms. Burrell to attack the problem of reading literacy and reading proficiency with the ultimate goal of expanding the program to include mentors to help students with not only reading skills, but also life skills. She also invites interesting guests to come on her program to discuss their challenges with reading as well as their joy and appreciation of reading. Some of the guests are authors who discuss their books and offer their insight into the importance of reading and being good readers. Join Joanne the first and third Saturday of every month at 12 p.m. Eastern and 11 a.m. Central Time for Read, Read, Read exclusively on your network for causes, issues, and life empowerment, the CWR Talk Network. You're listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag One Million Strong. And welcome back 
to our town hall discussion. The topic tonight is Stand Against Gun Violence. My name is Desiree Peoples. I am tonight's moderator. If you are just joining us, I'd like to introduce our panel to you. First off, we have Dr. Bindu Kalasan. She is an assistant professor of medicine and a clinical epidemiologist, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I'm saying it wrong, please forgive me. Uh, she does study trauma and uh, as it relates to violence, and she has done extensive research on gun violence, so we are very pleased to have her on board tonight. Uh, next, we have Dakota Jablon. She is passionate about firearm suicide prevention. She's been giving us a lot of insight as uh, gun violence as it relates to mental illness. And we also have Mr. John Sutton with us tonight. He is a former U.S. Justice Department special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration. And finally, we have Michael Diamond, who is a former military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army Reserve for seven years. He's also a veteran of Operation Desert Storm. Now, we are moving into the final segment of tonight's program. If you would like to call in, again, I'm going to give you that number which is area code 563-999-3660. Our lines are open. We do invite you to join us in this discussion and get involved on uh, what we can do to end gun violence. We have covered many topics as it relates to that, um, as far as the emotional effects of the victims, mental illness. We've also had some, some input um, as it relates to uh, military and training and enforcing and all kinds of things, regulations. So we are just moving on to the last part of the show. Now, I'd like to uh, get into what we can do and gun violence. We do have a list of suggestions here, but I'd like to address the panel and kind of get their, you know, final thoughts on this. And I'm going to start with John. What are your main ideas as far as how we can end gun violence or how can we make a positive change? Um, when I was a youth in California, there were a lot of activities that youth could become involved in, get involved with, and I think we're lacking that today. I, I find that there is a breakdown in uh, our administrations from the local, federal, and state level in understanding youth today. And I think the youth today uh, have very little things to do, uh, and I think we are really neglecting them to a great degree. And for those of you who have information on gangs and how they form, and uh, you realize that this is why a lot of them go into gangs, and um, we have uh, gangs, they commit all kinds of violence using guns, and we have um, a lot of youth who get involved in criminal activities, uh, and believe it or not, there are a lot of youth out there, uh, young adults in both black, brown, yellow communities who sell guns. They are gun runners. Um, and we have a lot of law enforcement agencies who I think are behind time as it involves enforcing uh, many of these types of crimes like gangs. Uh, drugs, but I do know that, and I feel that there are a lot that can be done. And I know a lot of times criminologists and uh, uh, 
they immediately go to the the equation for uh, uh, criminals, young adults committing crimes coming from a, they usually tag them as coming from a an eroded uh, family life, usually matriarchally ruled uh, with no father in the household, no male in the household, not and many not knowing uh, their father. Um, they're living in poverty and that sort of thing. I think there are a lot that can be done that, to address a lot of these issues uh, as it involves uh, kids with no fathers. We have programs called Big Brother, Big Sisters. Uh, we have the churches. I think the churches could play a major role. And I think uh, a key thing to a lot of the violence as it involves guns is that I think we've gotten away from believing in a supreme being, a being stronger or more powerful than men. And I know we've taken God or a supreme being out of school, and we don't believe too much in the churches. So, uh, And we have a lot of people in fiduciary positions uh, who commit all kinds of crimes, uh, from ministers to uh, pillars of the communities. And they, I think the young adults, they see this, and they have a total, complete disrespect uh, almost for the system. I think we need to strengthen our communities, strengthen our churches, have the churches help in the community, have um, community-based programs to deal with the youth, or like in the olden days, like BYPU or dances and picnics and things, engaging the young adults. Uh, and I think there are a lot of young adults out there who have supervised themselves, and as a result, and this is why we have so many uh, young adults involved in criminal activities and gun violence, etc. I think if we strengthen our community and our churches, and we go into a big brother, big sister, uh, type environment or treatment facility, and go back to the olden days when an adult saw a young kid doing something wrong, the adult would correct the kid, and I think we don't do that anymore. I think we have let a lot of the old-time methodologies and methods of raising kids pass. Uh, even today, we have uh, crimes like in schools, we have them in churches, like we had even in Little Rock, we had a church robbed in Little Rock. The church is being robbed in many states. Uh, schools are being uh, shot up. Uh, I think we need to get a control of that. And I think a core, a basic first step should be in the home and in the community. Thank you, John. Uh, Bindu, I'd well, like to um, ask you. I, I, I was just listening to what John was saying, and it and he's he's saying that you got to go back into the local, you know, make it local, right? Right. And that's a great idea. However, I, I I would also say you know it's good to think about a few things, like for example, our violent crime rates. It's been plummeting since the 1990s, right? However, we're seeing gun violence increasing, so there it's. I think it's a lot, a little bit more nuanced than that. And of course, keeping that thing in mind, you know, go local. Local is where you need to start making changes. Um, so maybe there is a little bit more to it, since you know, violent crimes are at an all-time low. 
And uh, despite that, there is an increase in uh, gun violence. Um, I'm not talking just in terms of deaths alone, like overall. So, for example, I would say, you know, um, I'm, I'm in Boston, and what we say about Massachusetts in general is that, oh, you know, we are the model state for gun violence prevention. That's because you're just looking at the gun deaths alone, right? Because we have very low gun death rates. You look at, I'm currently studying Boston crime data. And in, 19, in, sorry, in 2016, 2017 alone, if I look at that data, shooting incidents, there were one per day. And that's just in the city of Boston. So it, is it something that it's, you know, when, when we say go local, and there's probably not just one solution to go local. Like in every community, the solutions could be different. So, for example, if I go to Iowa and I look at gun deaths, it's, it's mostly because of suicide. 80% are because of suicide. So that solution might not be the same as solution within, within Boston. Or, so I, I think it's a lot more nuanced, and it has to be these programs or interventions that we need to have to prevent gun violence should be very tailored to each community and uh, not to sound terribly, um, uh, I don't know, I'm, um, sometimes I'm just disillusioned about all this and, um, it, you know, it's like I'm on the other side. Like There are so many guns in this country that I, I feel like this is never going to stop. The one thing I can, I can help be on the other side and make sure that 70% of them who survive, we can do something for them. So I'll leave it at that. Okay, thank you. Dakota? I think she's exactly right about how there isn't just one program or one policy solution because gun violence in America is so nuanced. It's you know, there's domestic violence, there's unintentional gun deaths, suicides, homicides, school shootings. Um, it's just there isn't just one solution. But I think that there are a lot of different solutions that should all be enacted and implemented that will reduce our gun death rate and gun injury rate, which is also equally important. Um, like I talked a little bit about before, the permit-to-purchase laws are a great evidence-based policy that could be implemented in all the states. Um, and then there could be at the federal level a policy that would provide grants for states to have the money to actually implement these laws. The same with the extreme risk protection order or red flag laws, having those at the state level and then a federal bill that, or a federal law, excuse me, that would incentivize states by creating grants and so the states would have the money to implement these laws. Then at the program level, um, one of the things about children and or youth and gun violence is summer job programs have actually been shown to reduce violent crime and gun violence rates, specifically in Chicago. So I think that that is a promising result. Lethal means safety counseling which is training health providers on how to talk to their patients who may be at a risk for suicide, how to create a safety plan around firearms. That is something that is really promising and has been done a lot at the VA, 
but it needs to be done, you know, with the general population as well. And so instructing and teaching our healthcare professionals on how to have those crucial conversations. And one last thing that I want to touch on that we haven't talked about right now is with the funding restrictions on gun violence research. There is so little money going towards gun violence research by the federal government compared to every other leading cause of death or leading cause of morbidity. And the federal government and our Congress needs to appropriate at least $50 million in the next Congress to research gun violence because I personally want to implement and pass and see laws that are evidence-based so we know that they work. But in order for that to happen, we need to have the research to back that up. And also we need to have the federal tracking of gun deaths and trauma and of injuries. And so all of that costs a lot of money and it happens for, you know, traffic accidents or bike, bicycle helmets. And we know that those all work because of research. And so we need the federal government to really step it up and also be funding gun violence research. Yeah, I do think that's a good point. That's so. actually a great point because we are, you know, uh, I, it is so hard for us to get funding. Sometimes we, we use our own money to do research. I would like to add that um, I'm aware uh, that the federal government does disperse, appropriate a lot of money to various states uh, for various uh, grants as well as law enforcement efforts. And I find it surprising that nothing uh, is done as it involves uh, a gun, uh, the guns. I do know that in many, uh, most all states, there are federal task force uh, combined with state and local agencies like we do have the uh, missing children and missing and exploited children task force. We have drug task force. We have a lot of uh, a task force that um, combine federal, state, and local agencies directed toward uh, suppressing various types of crimes. As it involves assaults, gun assault, it was my understanding through the FBI, all police departments are required um, are requested to submit um, reporting, and you do have what is called the Uniform Crime Report that's put out by the FBI every year. And I, I do believe that as it involves gun assaults by guns or gun uh, shots and stuff like that, I believe they are reported to the FBI, and I believe they have a retrieval database for that information. But I do know that the Department of Justice appropriates a lot of money uh, to the states uh, for these types of efforts, and I find it uh, difficult to not believe that something as it involves gun violence is not involved. Uh, I know that the uh, states, a lot of the state programs are funded by the federal government, and and I would think that for grants, uh, there shouldn't be any difficult getting a grant for any type of funding as it involves crime suppression or dealing with crimes and gun violence. I don't see that being a big problem. I'm retired from the federal government, and when I was working with the federal government, I was in a position to allocate funds to various states. Uh, and I, I still believe that there is money there for 
research money there for task forces, et, et cetera. And I think that it's just a matter of putting together a package and requesting it from the Department of Justice. So the CDC is really the one that doesn't have the money to give to the gun violence research. And so that's when it goes into tracking, like if all the numbers that we pull based on gun deaths, that's all comes from the CDC whiskers. And right. so there is, but they don't have the money to accurately track the number of non-fatal gun injuries. And so the recently there was a report that showed that the numbers they were releasing were actually not at all precise. And it's because of the lack of money. And there also was this, the Dickey Amendment, which limited Congress's ability to appropriate money to the CDC to specifically to research gun violence prevention. There's a lot of confusion around that. Um, but the biggest thing is that there needs to be money appropriated for CDC research funding, not just for the programs from the DOJ or other, you know, there's for the VA, all the other federal agencies, but specifically going to research at, you know, universities, gun violence prevention. Yeah, I think the CDC, and then evaluating if I'm not mistaken, I believe they, uh, the CDC is uh, basically with disease where gun violence is a little different. I think it would be under the Department of Justice would be the department to get funding for that instead of CDC. John, I, so we, I received funding for, from the uh, Department of Justice once, but then that was it, especially for the firearms. The second time over, what they're doing is putting all that money into crime suppression and policing. And that doesn't, I mean, it is part of, part of gun violence, but then that is not really what I think um, needs a lot of uh, research on because there, there are certain funds earmarked for, for, for policing. I would, I would suggest going back with, to the Department of Justice uh, yeah. and not taking a no answer. Okay. And also with the CDC, the reason that the CDC, they are, the CDC is responsible for anything that is involving research of deaths. And so if it's about gun deaths, then that would go through the CDC. And I know my organization specifically looks at gun violence through the public health perspective. So we look at gun violence as a public health problem, which is what the CDC is there for. And so other deaths, like I mentioned, you know, motor vehicle deaths or bicycle accidents, all of those get a ton of money from the CDC specifically to research that. And so the medical communities and the public health communities have, and the gun violence prevention communities have come together and requesting 50 million to be appropriated specifically to gun violence prevention research through the CDC. So what, what would be some ideas of how to fund that? Would it be uh, maybe taxation on gun purchases? Would it be, I mean, gosh, I don't know. I mean, is there is there some way to the money to fund there? They just need they just the Congress just needs to appropriate the money. So the money exists. It's just going to other places within the CDC. So it wouldn't affect well, like everyday Americans wouldn't be involved in that. Um, it just know, needs to be appropriated to that specific 
topic, if that well, makes sense. I agree well, with what I, Dakota is saying, but also we have to think about how CDC is kind of changing. In you know, earlier they did a whole lot of research, but now they are more going into infectious diseases. You have all the Zika, you know, Zika research done there. But they're more, I mean, syndromic surveillance folks. And 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 I hear you. When you say non-fatal injuries, MEISS has to be a lot better. And there are ways to do that, too. But I, I'm not sure. See, uh, the reason I'm, I'm not sure is that uh, there was some money allocated to CDC, and what they did was they put everything into NVDRS. And NVDRS is, is just, it's good. It's, it's a good data, but in a very limited fashion because they don't ask about gun ownership. And information within NVDRS is very limited, and I feel like it's sort of, it doesn't serve the purpose that what we, you know, we're not just looking into death alone. We want to look at non-fatal injuries as well. So I worry that CDC will do the same thing. And on the other hand, when I look at NIH, NIH should be giving out money for um, gun violence research. Now, you look at Alzheimer's research, most of it, about 60% of that, the money goes into Alzheimer's research. Um, I'm not very sure about the percentage, but I think a lot of money goes into Alzheimer's research. I'm not saying not don't do Alzheimer's research, but a part of that money could be used for um, uh, gun violence research as well. Alzheimer's research, people at least get to live to get Alzheimer's, uh, Alzheimer's disease, but gun violence victims, they're very young. And that, that is the most important part that NIH is missing. I really think yes. NIH which should be doing that. Yes, well, I, I think back to how maybe uh, funneling some of that responsibility onto gun manufacturers, just like the same way, you know, cigarette companies mm-hmm. um, funded research, you know, billions of dollars. Um, Maybe some of that responsibility should also fall onto the gun manufacturers and maybe they should be responsible for at least contributing a percentage to uh, gun research, gun violence research, and so forth. Any thoughts on that? That is great. But then how do we, we have to sue them in order to get that money. There was a huge lawsuit for for the uh, tobacco companies. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. You know, and in order to get that lawsuit in place, there was a lot of research already, evidence upon evidence. Mm. I was actually part of that Surgeon uh, General's report. So it, it took a lot of effort from the scientific community to generate all that information, that evidence, and then that won the lawsuit. I think right. a, a one solution could be for the federal government to require a federal tax on the purchase of firearms like they do for fuel, as you will, the fuel taxes immediate appropriate, appropriated back to the states to be used on what they call highway user taxes. So I think if they put a federal tax on firearms purchase and use that tax uh, for that, yeah. Energy, Provide grants. Yeah. That would be one way, but I, I still think mm-hmm. that if you went into the Department of Justice for a research program regarding gun violence, I don't think that you would have any problem getting a grant. 
I really don't. I, I, I feel positive about that. John, this time they had only one grant. Usually they do three. This time they reduced it to one. <laughs> I'll call Jeff and tell him to take care of it for you. Please do. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, as we get to the final, the final uh, moments of our town hall meeting tonight, I'd like to, again, open it up to our panelists. And if there's any last or final closing thoughts that you really – uh, would like to share or touch upon or maybe, you know, maybe dive deeper into something that we have discussed earlier this evening. I'm going to start with you, Bindu. Sorry, can you can you repeat that? Sorry. I... Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, I just wanted to, as we, as we wrap up our discussion tonight, I wanted to kind of open it up to our panelists and if they had any final or closing thoughts or if there was something that you wanted to touch more upon that we didn't get to dive deep into tonight. I'd like to give you that opportunity now. So is there any uh, final thoughts or anything else that you'd like to close out the program with tonight? My only thing, and I've, I've talked about it earlier too, is about survivorship. What are we going to do with the survivors? And, it, and again, you know, looping back to that question of, okay, what should we do to end gun violence? What should we do to treat gun violence survivors? How are we helping them? While we are sitting back, and I wouldn't say sitting back, but um, while, you know, gun violence prevention, prevention efforts are not 100% or, or not uh, producing the results it ought to, we are still having a lot of people who are suffering from gun violence um, injuries. What do we do with that? What are the, uh, can we provide Medicare for all of them? Yes, I do think that is a very important issue, and I think it's, it's something that most people consider secondary and they don't think of that as, as one of the, um, I guess, main primary effects. But I think that is something that we do need to bring more awareness to and we do need to, you know, allocate resources for that support. John. Yeah, I think, you there, is, uh, I think there is, there is a, uh, a mechanism where resources can be provided to victims of crime through the Department of Justice. I know there are fundings and other uh, resources available for victims of crimes, and I'm sure that um, that involves the gunshot victims as well and uh, members of the uh, victim's family. I, um, I think that we should press our politicians to really consider making the laws stricter than what they are. I know that when the shot when they had that shootout over there in Virginia at the uh, baseball or softball game, I would have thought they would have come back and uh, stopped all guns from coming into the United States, especially assault weapons. I would be for the outlawing of assault weapons because I don't think that they have any purpose, purpose uh, certainly not a sporting purpose, not for hunting. Uh, in the United States, and I would be for outlawing those in bump stocks and any weapon, um, the AR-15, the AK-47s, and any weapons uh, that are have rapid uh, fire potential, uh, and I think we should outlaw that. And I know that we uh, should have stronger gun laws, and I strongly believe that we should include in that 
those persons who have had mental issues, uh, as we do with, uh, you know, with sex offenders, they have to, once convicted, they have to register, as as well as the um, um, felons have to register as well. So I can see that we should have a registration for um, persons who have mental uh, deficiencies who, uh, and I'm not saying that everybody has the potential to be a, use a firearm, but I think that should be information out there to gun dealers to let them know that this is a precaution, this should be a red flag. I think, again, banning type assault weapons uh, should be done, and I know you have to make gun trafficking a federal crime. It is my understanding gun trafficking is a federal crime, um, depending on if a person has a prior felony conviction. Uh, and I do know that alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which is a federal agency that uh, investigates the trafficking in firearms and explosives, uh, and that's a federal agency. But I think we should have our legislators uh, really look into it more seriously and provide the funding that is needed and to be, and to be more susceptible uh, to support organizations who have interest in those in this direction. That's what I would proffer. Okay, thank you, John. And Dakota, was there anything that you'd like to share before we wrap up and or anything that you'd like to dive deeper into that maybe we've only touched on tonight? Um, I think the last thing that I would just touch on again is trying to really bring home the point that mental illness and gun violence are not intrinsically linked and that, like I said before, one in five individuals in America has a diagnosable mental illness. And we just are obviously never going to prohibit all of those individuals from owning a firearm. And if you are looking at like what the biggest risk factor is for for gun violence, whether by suicide or by interpersonal violence, the biggest risk factor is being a male. And so we would never say that we're just not going to allow men to have guns. And so I think it's important to look at it like that. Um, And so really to look at what are, based on evidence, actual risk factors for violence. And the biggest predictor of future violence is past violence behavior. So another strategy would be to prohibit individuals with violent misdemeanors from purchasing firearms. And that is law in California, and it's made a huge difference. So I think just to end, I would say to really focus on what are the risk factors that are based on research and based on evidence that increase your risk of violence either towards yourself or others. And then also, which I keep saying, is to make sure that we include suicide prevention within the gun violence prevention conversation. Yeah, I agree. And and I think that you really, you make a distinction of, you know, suicide prevention, mental illness, and gun violence, and how people kind of lump them all together. But I think there's just that, that lack of awareness or that lack of experience for people to really know any different. So I think um, it's probably going to take just a lot of re-educating and, and 
maybe just um, giving people solid tools so they know the difference and they know what to look for and what, I guess, how to label it. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. I think that there's just a lot of misconception around people with mental illness and such the stigma within our population. But in reality, I mean, just based on the stats, every person knows someone with a mental illness, whether you know it or not. And I personally have a mental illness, and I have diagnosed depression disorder, and I felt super ashamed of it for most of my life, and it wasn't until actually working in gun violence prevention that I realized I needed to stop subscribing to that stigma because I was talking about this all the time and to start to show a face to mental illness and to show I am not a violent person. I'm not trying to commit violence against myself or others, and but I do live with a mental illness. And so I think, which is a different topic, but I think with, as more people feel more comfortable sharing that, that maybe people will see people with mental illness or struggling, that they're not this other type of people, that they really are just normal human beings also. Yeah, I agree. I think I think most people, when they hear mental illness, they think, quote, quote, someone's crazy, just like when people exactly. think of someone... Yeah, like when people think of someone using a gun, they think, quote, unquote, oh, he's a violent, you know, mass murderer or something like that. So I agree. I think um, now that mental illness is becoming more socially acceptable as as something that people are living with every day, then, yeah, I think we can definitely make a change with that. Like I said, at least redefining it so people, like you said, are not having the stigma and feeling ashamed or embarrassed or helpless. I want to make yeah. I want to make an apology if I uh, came off wrong by mentioning mental illness. I mentioned that in that when uh, most people go into the police department, you take a Minnesota multifaceted personality test, and in that test, what they try to discern is if you have homicidal or suicidal tendencies. And um, I mentioned that to say that. And I, I and I will apologize if I offended anyone, but I do know that from my experience, a lot of people who have committed crimes of violence have been have had uh, some deficiency, some mental deficiency. And I and I again, I apologize. That has been my my experience as a police officer for uh, four years out in Compton, California, and as a federal narcotic agent. And as a, uh, you know, having been a teacher uh, at the university level as well as uh, uh, college level, I, I just, but I apologize if I offended you, but I still think that there are people who are, I would say, upset or whose mental faculties uh, make them prone to commit violence. And I've met people, I've arrested people who were that way, and I mentioned earlier uh, the suicide by cop. Uh, but I still think that that should be something uh, that should be on record to indicate. Uh, I would just say this, that I have a uh, an inherent member of my family and in-law who has a, um, 
uh, a mental uh, deficiency. And uh, I know at one time I had given him a gun, and I uh, took the gun back. I was an Indian giver, if you could use that phrase. I took the gun back because I know that uh, he would, and I don't think that he would hurt himself or anyone, but I knew that it would be against the law to provide someone a gun who uh, had been documented having had uh, some issues in that direction. Yeah, so I think that is part of part of the solution is 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 supporting mental health, and right. then, like you said, su- su- supporting those who who may have some deficiencies as it relates to mental health, right. and then tying that into. Um, I don't even want to say gun violence because, you know, obviously like we've talked about tonight, one is not directly in correlation with the other, but we do have to see how all these factors come into play when someone does decide to use a gun in a violent way. Right. So I appreciate you all opening that discussion and being very sensitive about it because, you know, like you said, there's so many people out there suffering quietly and then one thing leads to another and then who knows, but but yeah, I think that's um, that's very good, John. And Thank in, you. And in the same vein, just to clarify, I think it's important that, um, like with the statistic I used about four percent of violence isn't attributable attributable to mental illness. That's specifically to mental illness on its own. So if someone mm-hmm. has a mental illness, but other but they do have other factors that do increase your risk of violence, such as past violence behavior or alcohol misuse or, greatly increases your risk, substance misuse, you know, domestic yeah, violence. abuse. Then, mm-hmm. so it's the, specifically the mental illness in, on its own is the little contributor. But of course there are people who have a mental illness and also have a substance use disorder and their risk of violence greatly grows up because they are misusing alcohol or drugs, or maybe they, you know, are super angry and they have been violent. And so then their risk goes up again. So it's the specific is that it's mental illness on its own does not increase your risk. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Again, that, that helps to reeducate most people into what they think mental illness, mental wellness, and what mental health is. So thank you. I agree. Okay, so uh, I guess looking over tonight, looking at my notes, I've got like five pages of notes here, and we've we've covered quite a bit of ground as it relates to gun violence, and uh, we've talked about the requirements for owning firearms. We've covered uh, background checks and laws and how to enforce those laws. Um, Is there anything uh, else? panel that you guys wanted to add in relation to that before we close out. If not, that's okay. (laughs) Uh, And I know we didn't cover this uh, too much tonight, but I have on my notes um, supporting the GVRO and ERPO policies, gun violence restraining order. I know, I think Michael touched on that just a tiny bit. But um, I know that's also another element that probably should be open for discussion at, you know, maybe another date, maybe if we get to do a part two to this. But, um, again, I do want to thank you all. And um, if there's anything else you guys would like to add, otherwise I will go oh, ahead just, and close everything. Yes. This is Dakota. I'll just add, because it's kind of confusing because 
the law has so many different names and acronyms, but the extreme oh. risk extreme risk protection order is the same thing as the ERPO or ERPO, which is also the red flag law and also called the gun violence restraining order or GVRO. So it's very confusing, but they're the same law. Okay. Well, I do want to thank uh, all of my panelists tonight for this lively discussion. Again, you're listening to the CRW Talk Network. And our town hall discussion is uh, the Stand Against Gun Violence. We had an expert panel on board with us tonight, and I'd like for each of them to kind of let us know how maybe if we had questions or maybe if someone wanted more information or if they can, you know, maybe if you'd like to share your socials, I'd like to give you that opportunity to do so right now, Uh, starting with you, Bindu. If someone uh, would like to reach out to you, maybe for questions or more information, how can they do that? Oh, um, you can um, just Google me, and uh, my email is kalason at bu.edu. And, um, yeah, so I'm at the Boston University, so if you just Google Kalason, I'll come up. So um, feel free to talk to me about anything. I usually get a lot of calls from gun owners, and I have learned quite quite a bit. I also want to thank um, the, the um, other, um, uh, you know, John and Mike and Dakota and Desiree and, and for, for um, putting this all together, but I've learned so much today, and it was such a privilege to listen and learn. So thank you so much. Well, it was definitely a pleasure having you. Your contributions were very much appreciated and very enlightening, and I think we can all say the same about you. You've taught us quite a bit this evening. Uh, Dakota, I'd like to uh, give you the opportunity, if someone would like to reach out to you for more information or if you'd like to, um, you know, maybe give your email, share, whatever you like to do, I'd like to give you that opportunity right now. How can someone get in touch with you? Uh, people can email me at djablon, and it's J-A-B as in boy, L-O-N, at csgv.org. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Dakota Page underscore, and I tweet a lot about this issue. But I'm also available on email, and I'm happy to chat with anyone. And I'll also reiterate, thank you so much for having me, and it's been so interesting to learn from all the different perspectives. Yes, and thank you, Dakota, again, for, you know, being so open about such a sensitive topic and really giving us, you know, more information to to kind of, you know, change the way, like I said, the way we label things and the way we define things as they relate to mental health and gun violence. So thank you so much for that. Um, finally, John, how can people uh, connect with you if they'd like to maybe find out about your books or ask you questions or get more information? Uh, I can be emailed at J Preston. That's J P R E S T O N S U at S B C Global dot net. In addition, I'm on a, a YouTube interview. Go to YouTube, American Dope, and go to DEA Undercover Agent. I have a an hour and thirty eight minute interview 
on that on YouTube, but I can be reached at the email address. I think if you go to YouTube and see the interview, you will find it interesting. All right. Thank you so much, John. And again, we appreciate your contributions to the program tonight, and we appreciate you being here and all of your insights. And finally, uh, Michael Diamond, he had to leave uh, within the last hour. So I am not going to uh, give out his information because I don't know it and I don't have his permission to do so. But I'm sure um, I'll reach out to him and then we'll have his contact information in the show notes. So if you did have questions, uh, we can make that information available to you. Again, you have been listening to the Stand Against Gun Violence, our town hall discussion tonight right here on the CWR Talks Network. My name is Desiree Peoples. I've been your moderator for this program this evening. If you have any questions, uh, you can reach out to me. My name is Desiree, D-E-S-I-R-E-E, at mommyreporter.com, and it's mommyreporter.com. And uh, I'm open to any questions or anything that you guys may want to discuss as it relates to this topic or any topics relating to this topic. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight. And, um, yeah, I think that will wrap it up. We'll see you on the next show. Okay, thank you, and bye. Wake up, everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more back Thank you for joining us for today's town hall event, The Stand Against Gun Violence, presented by the CWR Talk Network and CWR Media Group. We hope you enjoyed the event and that you are inspired to continue your involvement in the fight against gun violence. We also want to thank our outstanding panel, Dr. Ben Du Callison, Mr. John Sutton, Ms. Dakota Jablin, and Mr. Michael Diamond, and our awesome moderator, Ms. Desiree Peoples. We thank all of you. Keep listening to the CWR Talk Network as we continue to bring you programming that focuses on today's major issues and important causes. Thank you again for your support and have a good evening. If we just let it be. You're listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag One Million Strong.